Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Today, I want to discuss with you a story in the Bible that made an impression on me when I was young. Since hearing it, I have thought about it a lot. It's a story about a rich ruler and is introduced in the New Testament. I'm sure that most of you remember the story, right? One day, when Jesus was walking to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him and asked him a question. The man asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus tells this man, who is very rich, to go and sell all of his possessions and give the money to the poor, and then to follow him. After Jesus tells the man this, he turns to his disciples and tells them that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I had a very hard time understanding what Jesus was saying in this story when I was young. Was he saying that all rich people are not able to enter heaven? Then why are there Christians out there that are rich? Is Jesus saying that only the poor will be able to enter heaven? This was very confusing to me and made me think a lot. But Jesus is not talking about all the possessions that we have today. Let's read this story in Mark chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up, looking at him. Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. After reading these verses, there are two separate commands that catch my eye. They are the words go and follow. What is the ultimate command that Jesus is talking about when he uses both of these words? His final command is, then come and follow me. When Jesus tells the rich man, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, he's not telling the man to do a good deed. Jesus is telling the man to do this so that he can come and follow him. Jesus knew that the young rich ruler loved his possessions more than Jesus, and that was hindering him from following Jesus. Jesus told the man to go and sell all that he possessed because you cannot follow Jesus if you possess something that you love more. But the rich ruler was not able to do anything after listening to what Jesus told him. The Bible tells us that the man was saddened by the words of Jesus and he went away sad because he had many possessions. I cannot stop picturing the face of this young rich ruler as he turned away, worrying about what he must do. I think that all of us can relate to this somehow in our lives. If we're not able to follow Jesus completely today, then there is probably something in our lives that we consider more important and that is stopping us from following Him. 
To some people, it can be to follow their dreams. To others, it can be success. And to others, it can be to become a rich man like the rich ruler. And others can even place their children or their spouse ahead of Jesus. The rich ruler had to lose whatever it was that he had. He should have sold all that he possessed. Jesus tells the man that he is not able to follow him while holding on to all of his possessions. What is that we are lacking in our lives today? Wealth and honor? Our dreams? Pride? Comfort? Of course, all of these things are important, but they do not replace Jesus Christ, who has given us eternal life. None of these things can be exchanged for the eternal life that we have received. The Lord still asks all of us today, What is it that you love more than me? What is it that you were leaning on? The young rich man walked away, unable to choose Jesus before his possessions. He just turned away from Jesus, even though one day he must leave all his possessions. He even knelt in front of Jesus, asking him how he could have eternal life, but he was not able to hold on to Jesus and follow him. I hope that all of us will not make the wrong decision like the rich man did and just turn away from Jesus. We must remember that there is nothing that can replace our Jesus Christ.
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead? Based on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-8. through 8. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. They declare clearly the gospel. There's no misunderstanding what the Apostle Paul is wanting to communicate here. He's saying this is the gospel. These events are what make up the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 8. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in according with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The heart of Christianity is the belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the core, it's the essence of Christianity. And if the resurrection of Jesus could somehow be refuted or explained away, then Christianity crumbles. And as the Apostle Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Everything depends on the resurrection. So, in many ways, the most important question that a skeptic could ask, we have looked at six questions before this. They've all been important questions to be able to have an answer for. But for us, the most important question that could be asked is did Jesus really rise from the dead? This is the most important because it's the core of Christianity. And this is a question that, you know, we may think, oh, come on, everybody believes that. But uh, that's not true. For 2,000 years, people have offered different theories that have been postulated to explain why that tomb was empty on the morning of the third day. And maybe you've heard some of them or you thought of them yourself. And so I want to state as what are offered as the most common and plausible theories and then give a reasonable response to those theories. Now, what I'm going to share with you are not straw man arguments. They're not things that we've made up so that we can knock them down. These are actual explanations that have been offered to explain why the tomb was empty without accepting that Jesus rose from the dead. The first explanation is that it's a fabricated story. The disciples just made up the story. 
that seems, frankly, like, okay, if you wanted to have a good story, you could just make up the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe it seems pretty plausible, but think about it. If they were making up a story and just writing down something that seemed like it would be believable, you would write the story completely differently. To begin with, their mentality was they didn't think that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They didn't believe he had risen from the dead themselves. They don't write about themselves the way you would write if you were going to put together a biography of some story. They, they show themselves as foolish, feeble, frightened. You don't write a story about yourself. I mean, you always make yourself look a little better in your biographies. See, that would be the way you would write the story. You would come out pretty good. But instead, the apostles are very transparent about how they were, how they were acting, the things they said. And another problem with just thinking that they would have written this story is the way this story is told wasn't socially acceptable in the first century. We have to remember that in the first century mindset, the testimony of a woman was not considered reliable. It was considered completely undependable. I mean, it's very important because the women were considered to be unreputable witnesses, but who discovered the resurrection first? The woman, Mary, and the other women came. If I'm writing a story and I want to convince you in the first century that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, I am not going to have women be the first people to discover that and come and tell the story. It would be some respectable guy. You understand? So you're not writing this story right for a couple of reasons. If you're making up the story, you certainly are blowing it from the very first. Their story would be immediately considered dubious or undependable at best. But you've got to remember that all these eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection willingly died for their testimony. Not one of them ever wavered in their testimony of who they saw. They saw Jesus alive. They did it when the knife was put to their skin and some of them had their skin peeled away while they were still living. They were flayed alive. Others were crucified and when the nail was in place right by their wrist and the hammer was ready to fall, they didn't deny Jesus. Others, when their head, they were going to be beheaded, they didn't deny Jesus. You don't die for a fabricated story. Another theory that's been given to explain why the tomb was empty is that Jesus' disciples stole his body. Now, at first glance, maybe that seems to be a possibility. The thought is that Jesus' disciples just stole his body, and that explains why the tomb was empty. One of the gospel accounts, though, records that this explanation was a lie originally spread by the religious leaders to cover up the news that Jesus was alive. And you can see that in Matthew chapter 28. Look at verse 11. So this explanation goes way back. It goes back to the morning of the resurrection. But it's presented as this is a lie. Some of the guard, these were the men guarding the tomb, went into the city and told the chief priests, all that had taken place. That is, there had been an earthquake, they had been struck down, the stone was rolled away, 
they reported all of this to the chief priests and the elders. And when they had assembled with the elders, taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, bribing them. And they said, tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Okay, this is the deal. If the disciples stole the body while the soldiers were asleep, who's in big trouble? The soldiers, because if they're supposed to guard a prisoner, in this case, a body, which they must have thought was weird, but as they're supposed to guard something, keep that in the tomb if they were found asleep and they would be crucified. That was the penalty for sleeping on duty. So they said, so if the governor hears about this, we'll take care. You guys won't be in trouble. We'll get you up. So they took the money. And they did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Even by the time of Matthew's gospel being written, they are saying, hey, this, this lie still continues, it persists. It might sound plausible if you've never read the gospel accounts of Jesus death and resurrection, but you also gotta remember that the guard spoken of was not just one guy they placed a guard at the tomb, but the guard was 16 legionnaires. That's what a Roman guard was. These men had been trained for five years to be able to hold just a space of 35 square yards and hold their position without moving. They were Roman special forces. So here they are. They are guarding the tomb. Somehow the timid disciples, disciples who are freaked out that they're going to get crucified next, courageously got through 16 Roman legionnaires, rolled the stone away, took Jesus' body. This is insane, isn't it? But you see, with all of these theories, if you don't know the story and you don't know your history, they could sound plausible, couldn't they? So the disciples didn't, I think, didn't even have what it would take psychologically or emotionally to do this kind of great feat. They were devastated by Jesus' death. As I said, they had ran away and deserted him. Peter denied knowing him. They were all hiding. And the record repeatedly says that they didn't even believe Jesus would rise from the dead. For that reason, I think the backbone of this story is the testimony of 16 sleeping soldiers. His disciples stole his body. Well, how do you know? We were asleep. What judge is going to hear this case and not going to throw this case out of court because this is the testimony of 16 sleeping soldiers. It's like me wanting to take you to court and I accuse you. You broke into my house. You stole my credit cards and my laptop. Well, how do you know? I was asleep. Do you have any kind of video? Uh, did you have a, a, a security camera going or anything? No, I was asleep. But he stole it. Really? That's, that's all you've got. See, you throw it out, right? You throw that case out. And so that's the bottom line. No one would accept that kind of testimony. Now, as a skeptic, asking these questions... You have to be open-minded in here. And I don't mean to put anybody down, but these theories for Jesus to explain away Jesus' resurrection seem to me to be grasping at straws. 
Now, another theory skeptics have offered to explain the empty tomb is that Jesus' enemies stole his body. And right away, you've got the same problem of the Roman guard stationed at the tomb. And at its only entrance, there was no back door. How did his enemies get by the 16 legionnaires? And then, more importantly than that, you have the problem of what? Motive. Why would his enemies want to steal his body and make it look like he did what he said he was going to do? No way would you want that to happen. That would be the one thing you wouldn't want to do. And so when we look at Matthew chapter 27, because they didn't want that to happen, look at what they asked the Roman governor, Pilate, to do for them. Matthew 27 and verses 63 and 64. Sir, we remember that this deceiver once said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise from the dead. So his enemies remembered what he said. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at the first. Jesus' enemies knew his prediction, and that's why they requested the 16 legionnaires to be there. So would it make any sense for them to then steal his body after they made this special request? In order to accept this, we have to believe that Jesus' enemies would somehow have collaborated to do the very thing they didn't want to have happen. They would have worked against themselves. I don't mean to run this into the ground, but the problem of motive is a great big issue with this theory. And above all, if Jesus' enemies heard Peter, James, John, any of these disciples preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead, if they heard that anywhere in Jerusalem and they had stolen the body and they had Jesus' body, what could they do to stop the whole thing immediately? What could they have done? Produce the body. All they had to do would be take that body, lift it up in front of the crowd and say, he didn't rise from the dead. We have his body right here. But they didn't have his body. And we postulate they didn't have his body because he rose from the dead. Amen? And they certainly, if they had the body and stole it, they would have produced that body to stop the church dead in its tracks. It would have been the kiss of death for Christianity. Now, another theory that is often offered to explain the empty tomb is that Jesus really wasn't dead. And this is an old theory, but it's made more popular maybe about 50 years ago by a man whose name was Hugh Schoenfeld, and he wrote a book called The Passover Plot. I'll give you the highlight is that Jesus' disciples had a conspiracy, and it was to drug Jesus so that on the cross, he would look like he died, his heart rate and all would go down, and when they took him off the cross, it would appear that he was dead. He would then be put into that cold, damp, dark tomb. The stone rolled in front of it. He would revive in that environment. He would then make his way out of the tomb, and the tomb would be empty. We have several problems. One is... Crucified people usually don't live after their crucifixion. Crucifixion was a slow suffocation. The only way you could take a breath would be to push yourself up on the nail in your ankles 
and pull yourself up by the nails in your wrists. Of course, it's excruciatingly painful. And eventually, you would suffocate to death. It could take days. But because there was a national holiday coming on that weekend when Jesus was crucified, they wanted to hurry up the death of the prisoners. So this is what you would do. If you wanted to do that, you would go, and the soldiers would take their spear or club, and they would just smash the, the legs of the crucified victim, and then they couldn't push up anymore and breathe, and they would you know, suffocate right away. So... Uh, they did this to the others, but they came to Jesus and they didn't do that to him because he was already dead. And there was also a prophecy that said the Messiah's bones, not one of his bones would be broken. Okay, so Jesus is already dead. Now, here's another point. Keep in mind, there was a Roman centurion at that execution. This guy especially was the officer in charge and he was the one who signed the death certificate. So he had to certify that the victim was actually dead. So he signs off on the two thieves crucified on either side of Jesus. And then Jesus appeared to be dead. And so to make sure, what did he do? He took his spear, he pierced him through the heart. Jesus was dead, okay? The evidence is even blood and water came out of his heart. He had been dead a little while. The, his blood had separated. It was obvious he was dead. They took him off the cross. I mean, let's say he was alive still. Somehow, miraculously, he survived all that. Then they put him in the tomb he revived. So we're supposed to believe that a recently crucified man who had a spear jabbed through his heart woke up and then on recently crucified feet, walked to the stone that was in front of the door of the tomb and with recently crucified hands, rolled the stone away. Two-ton stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb and it fell into a groove. And so the only way you could open it would be from the outside anyway and it would take several men to be able to roll the thing up and out of the groove and out of the way. It, it doesn't make sense. The record does not support it is impossible to have happened. And then you've got the problem of Jesus then, a recently crucified man getting by 16 Roman legionnaires. Don't forget those guys. Now someone else has offered the idea that everyone went to the wrong tomb. This is one of the theories. You see, it was very early in the morning the women had been crying so hard. The disciples were so upset. They ran right by Jesus' tomb, and they ran to a tomb that was unused and empty. And there, mistakenly, they thought the tomb was empty and went back, reported it to the disciples. The disciples then ran and did the very same thing, ran right by the real tomb where Jesus had been buried, went to the wrong tomb, and surmise that Jesus had risen from the dead. I don't know what to say, except whose tomb was it? It was Joseph's. Now, Joseph had probably spent how many trips? I don't know, making this tomb for himself. You had to be very wealthy. Three days earlier, he had taken 100 pounds of burial spices to that same tomb. You're lugging 100 pounds of anything to somewhere, you're going to remember where you took it. And so somehow he didn't know where his own tomb was. This is not plausible, and I think it takes 
more faith to believe that than it does to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. We're being asked to believe that entire Roman guard went and guarded the wrong tomb and that Peter and John ran right past the right tomb to the wrong tomb. We're being asked to believe that Joseph of Arimathea didn't know the location of his own tomb. We're being asked to believe the Roman government secured the wrong tomb. And if this is true, why didn't authorities simply go to the right tomb and produce Jesus' body? The natural explanations offered here, I think, are seriously flawed. In one final attempt, I will share you the next one, and that is that everyone hallucinated. They believe they saw Jesus, but they were hallucinating. I, might, I could have a hallucination. You, but for us both to have the same hallucination, I don't know, that would be interesting. The Bible says, you just read, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. So we got to believe somehow that 500 people hallucinated seeing Jesus at one time. That's crazy. That takes a lot of faith. And I don't think that is plausible in any way. You know, the fact is Jesus was seen alive. That is the fact. Jesus' resurrection was no secret thing. There were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Paul said he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. He just counts the men. They didn't count the women and kids in those days. So it could have been a much larger group than that. And as you read in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, which speaks of a believer's death. So when he's writing to the Corinthians Christians, he's saying, hey, you can go back and verify what I said. Go check it out for yourself. They'll tell you what they saw. Some of them, they died, yeah, but most of them are still alive. Do you say that if you've made up a story? No, you don't. He wrote this about 25 years after Jesus' resurrection. Most of these 500 people were still living. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. Then he appeared to Mary with the women. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to 10 disciples. Then he appeared to 11 disciples. When he commissioned the disciples, he appeared again. He appeared to 500 people, as we've said, to James. He appeared to his disciples at his ascension. And he appeared several times to the apostle Paul. And that's just the appearances we have recorded. That's, the New Testament doesn't give us the whole story. It just gives us enough to believe and to know what we need to know. We don't have every sermon of Jesus, do we? But we have enough to know and to believe and understand his teachings. Jesus' resurrection was no private deal. Speaking of evidence, if you took these 500 witnesses and you took them to court, the judge says, okay, 500 witnesses. I'm going to give you 15 minutes to testify of what you saw. That would amount to 125 hours of solid testimony, no lunch breaks. There are ample reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead after he died. There's sufficient evidence. We can be sure that Jesus rose from the dead. His tomb was empty because he rose as he said he would. The Bible says in John chapter 20 that the disciples, when they got there, 
They saw the evidence and they believed. One of the things that we've got to understand is Jesus banked everything. Everything was dependent on one event. It was important that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The prophets said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but Jesus didn't say, by this you'll know that my claims are true. Jesus made claims. He said, like no one else, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He says, there's no other way to heaven but through me. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. The only way you will live and be raised to the resurrection of life is if you believe in me. I base all my claims on one thing, and that is I will be crucified, I will die, I will be buried, and I'll rise the third day. Everything he said depends on that. If I don't, then nothing I've said is true. That was the great sign. That was what he staked everything on. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, I'm declaring you the gospel that you've believed in which you stand. And he says, by which you're being saved. And that is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. And every single word that Jesus declared about himself, all the claims he made, all the promises that he gives are based upon this fact. And we have the evidence to believe it. We have a very sure and solid faith because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The resurrection is, you know, the death of Jesus, the Bible says, forgives us of our sins. He died for the guilt of our sins. We should be punished. He took our place. He died. He was buried. But the resurrection is the receipt. You know, Jesus on the cross cried out, it is finished, which means paid in full. That is, he died for your sins. All the wrong things you did were placed on him. But the resurrection is a receipt. It's saying it was enough. If anybody ever disputes the claim that my sins are forgiven, you just show them the receipt. Jesus rose from the dead. He rose for our justification, Romans chapter 4 says. He rose, and that proves that we are justified. When skeptics ask, did Jesus really rise from the dead? We can carefully walk through these points. They're logical. We can examine the challenges to our faith. We don't have to be afraid. And this one point, the heart, the very core of Christianity is solid. It's embedded in history. And I believe it's evidence, <laughs> the title of a very great book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Since Jesus did rise from the dead, then Jesus has a claim on your life. If he didn't rise from the dead, then what he says really doesn't matter. But he says, I am what I claim. I am the way, the truth, the life. I'm the only way to God. And I've backed it up. And could it be that you or someone don't accept Jesus' claims? And maybe the reason why you haven't wanted to believe in the resurrection is because you know if that's true, then he's got a claim on my life. There's no disputing 
And so now it's just a matter of what am I going to do with Jesus? And Jesus never, you know, kicks himself into somebody's life. You know, that's not the way Jesus works. He doesn't do that. The Bible says he stands at the door and he knocks. And if you hear his voice and you open the door, it's like the doorknobs from the inside and there's not one on the outside. You hear his voice and you open the door, he'll come into your life. Do you hear his voice right now? If you hear his voice, if he's knocking and you don't hear anything, then (laughs) that's a big problem. But if right now he's knocking and you're hearing his voice, then open the door. Because I don't know how much longer he's going to stand there knocking or ringing the doorbell, but it can only be you that opens that door. But he's here. He's there with you. And I would say this is the moment for you to step in faith and to give your life to Christ wherever you are, wherever you're listening. Stop whatever you're doing and make the most important decision of your entire life.
the program called The Good News of the Gospel. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. My name is Youngin Winston, and you are listening to our program, The Goodness of the Gospel. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Winston. Last time, we discussed about being born again. Yes, everyone who was born after Adam faced death. In order for these people to live, they would have to be born again through Jesus Christ, the second Adam. God will do so through the Holy Spirit. We have to be born again through the Holy Spirit, and once we do, we will get rid of the old ways of living and live as a child in the new family and learn the new rules and the new customs. So we would have to live as the children of God, as the Christians. That's right. So far, we've talked about being born again. Now let's discuss what will happen to us once we are born again through Christ. Is it regarding our future? Yes. Even though Christians these days understand the fact that they are God's children through Jesus Christ, who gave them salvation, they often have different views. On what happens afterwards, some may even think that it doesn't matter because they're already saved. But if we don't know what will happen after, that can bring a lot of dangers to our journey of faith. What are some of the dangers? Isn't it true that a lot of Christians are involved with cults? It is true. There are many cults in Korea, and they're multiplying. Even recently. A cult group called a New Heaven and New Earth Church. Her many Korean churches. Yes, it's called eschatology and theology. The reason why people are deceived is because they are not standing on the word of truth. Jesus warned us many times not to be deceived. In Matthew twenty four twenty four, he said. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and they will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So we should not be misled to great signs and wonders. We should stand firm in the word of truth. Yes, some Christians do have non-biblical thoughts. They often have mixed beliefs. Of the pagan view of eschatology, and the biblical view of eschatology. What are some example? First, many people think that Satan is the king of hell. Yes, I first believe that also. I thought since Satan is the king of hell, he deceives others to sin and to live against God. So that he can bring them to hell. Later on, as I studied the Bible more, I realized that is not true. Yes, many people think in terms of kingdom of God and kingdom of Satan, heaven and hell. This is the belief of cult members in the world. They think that Satan lives in hell and rules over it. Some even believe that people will be punished depending on the sins they committed in this world. But the Bible tells us that hell is no such place. Yes, we can find it in Revelations. 
Yes, it's in Revelations 20.10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The place we call hell is not a place where Satan rules. It's a place for him to be punished. It's not a place to torment others, but he himself will be tormented forever. Oh, wow. It is a totally different. So from what we have learned so far, can we say that God's justice is uh, accomplished? You're right. God's justice is accomplished. It's just as pagans say. Satan is the king of hell, and there are other kings for places such as the heaven. Then that means that good and evil still exist. There is no justice in the world if evil is never punished and good is never rewarded. That's the limit people put on religion. So, if God's justice is done, then there shouldn't be evil anymore, right? Since all evil things are judged. Of course, that is heaven, where there is no evil or sin. It's just filled with God and His Son, Jesus' righteousness. As we have discussed last time, it's the place where we become like Jesus, who cannot sin. I wish I can go there as soon as possible. Yes, it's obvious that God's people long for the day when it will be filled with God's righteousness because they cannot stand sin and evil. Since we are talking about hell, let me say this. Some people believe that when we die, they will be judged and go to either heaven or hell at that moment. It may be because they have different concepts regarding the two words heaven and hell. What do you mean by that? We simply think that people either go to heaven or hell once they die. At that moment, this belief also came from paganism. In Asian culture, they thought people go to the god of the underworld and get a decision of either going to heaven or hell after death. But the Bible tells us otherwise. Of course, there are many interpretations about what happens after death. Therefore, it's hard to say what is right. Yes. Since there are so many interpretations and beliefs, people get confused and some fall for heresy. Yes, that's right. I don't want to say what is right and open up a debate now, so I will just simply share what I have learned through the Bible. Where people go after death is different comparing Old Testament to the New Testament. So, it changes around Jesus? Yes, what he did on earth was related to life and death, so it makes sense that it would change around Jesus. What we have to remember is that if sin makes us become a minus, then God uses his righteousness to add a positive to reinstate us. Yes, we have talked about that last time. Now, death entered into the world because of sin. The Bible has over 10 different words to describe where people go after death. I don't think we have to study all those words. What we know is that people go somewhere after they die because of sin. Even though there are many words, we can call it a shoal. I think I have read it in the Bible often. The word shoal shows up in the Old Testament from time to time. It's one of those 10 words I told you about. 
So people go to Sheol after death. But remember that this is before Jesus, since it is written in the Old Testament. Even before Jesus' time, there were people who were blessed by God, right? Of course. There were Abraham and his descendants were chosen by God's grace. Yes, they were. But not everyone is righteous just because they are Abraham's descendants. We know this through reading the Bible. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, John the Baptist says, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So coming back to our discussion, surely there are people who are called righteous by God's grace. In Genesis 15:6 says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, I'm telling you this to tell you that there is division in Sheol where people go after death. Everyone is a sinner, so they die and go to Sheol. However, the people who were called righteous by God are in a different place in the Sheol. So, it's not the heaven we're thinking of? No, we can imagine how Sheol looks from reading Luke, where Jesus tells us a parable about a rich person and a poor man named Lazarus. Can you read Luke 16:23 and verse 26? Yes. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. We know that there is a shoal and there is a division in shoal. Right. The rich man is in shoal and the poor man Lazarus is also in shoal. Abraham is there also, but the rich man is in agony while the poor man Lazarus is in the arms of Abraham. In other words, he is under God's grace. However, due to the division, they cannot cross over to one another. This is what happened to people who died before Jesus' time because the price of sin was not paid yet through Jesus Christ. So, after Jesus came and died for our sin on the cross, there was a change. Right. I believe that when Jesus died and resurrected, he took those righteous people from Sheol to heaven. You believe Jesus personally did so? Is there any biblical reference? Yes, let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Therefore it says, When we ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, means that he also had to descend into the lower parts of earth. He who descended also ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Let's look at verse 8 again. Can you read that? When he ascended on high, he should be Jesus, right? When he ascended, where is he ascending? We know the answer in verse 9. 
He ascended from lower parts of the earth. So sure. Right. He led captive a host of captives. What were these captives of? There were in Shoal after death. So perhaps there were captives of a death. They were captives of death, but some were under God's grace. They were under God's grace, but their problem of sin was not solved yet. Therefore, Jesus came and gave them a gift, the gift of life. What is a gift? It's something that you give to someone else for free. It's not because of their righteousness, but because Jesus died on the cross for them, and gave them life as a gift. I can understand a little more now. So people who died before Jesus came to earth were in Sheol, and Jesus took them to heaven after he carried the cross. Then those people who died after Jesus' cross wouldn't go through the same process. Right after Jesus' cross, non-believers would go to Sheol, and believers would go to heaven. But we know that's not the end. There is a judgment day. Those people who did not believe in God and died according to their sin would be brought up from Sheol and will be judged. Let's read Revelations chapter twenty, verses ten through fifteen, one verse each. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose Presence, earth, and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake. Of a fire, so all the dead will be judged according to their acts. Right. This is the justice of God. The sinners will be punished for what they did, and that is being thrown into the lake of fire forever. This is the idea of hell that people have. They think that sinners would go to hell right away after they die. But now we know that this is not true. Right. Because the judgment. They did not come yet, just as the non-believers come out of a shell and experience second death after the judgment day. Wouldn't the believers also come out and go to New Jerusalem in heaven? Right. The believers also move to a different place. Can you read Revelations chapter twenty-one verses two through five for us? And. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of the heaven 
from God may ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for those words are faithful and true. That is the final destination from the beginning of God's creation recorded from Genesis chapter 1. God will bring down the holy new Jerusalem so that he can be with his chosen people. He will wipe the tears of his chosen people. The place will have no sadness, pain, or death. It's a place without sin, which God wanted all along. We will see God's amazing grace and plan. Wow, I am in awe. It is amazing that God began his creation for his final destination. I think he would be beyond happy too. I agree. God will be happy too because his big and final plan is completed at that time. Everyone who sees God in that place will praise him with all of their hearts. They will praise the Lord who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. I really want to see that day. I think I will cry in awe. I think everyone who is saved will cry as well. They are not tears of sadness, but of thankfulness and happiness. Let's read the last chapter of the Bible, Revelations 22. I'll start by reading verses 1 and 2. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is a description of New Jerusalem, and there is a tree that is recognizable. What is it? The tree of life? Yes, it's the tree of life. Where was this tree of life before? It was in Garden of Eden. This was with the tree of knowledges of good and evil in the middle of the garden. Right, but there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil in New Jerusalem. However, there is just a tree of life. So what do you think was the fruit that God wanted us to eat? It was the fruit from the tree of life. So God wanted to give us life from the beginning, but man chose death. Even then, 
God did not judge us. Instead, He saved us. That's right. That was the purpose of God's creation. Now, the good news of the gospel has two more weeks left. In the next two weeks, we will summarize everything that we have learned during the last 12 weeks. It has already been 12 weeks since we started this program. We have discussed so many things until now. So, I think it would be great to summarize everything we have learned. I hope everyone will have a great week in God's Plus. Yes, we hope everyone has a great week. We'll see you again next week. Goodbye. It's so funny to see how young children like to hold anything in their hands and try their best to not to let it go. I get so scared when I see them holding a sharp fork or chopsticks in their hands, flinging it around the air, thinking that they will hurt themselves. But when I try to take it away, they make a big scene, crying and screaming. What would a good mother do in a situation like that? They would take away the dangerous item in the child's hands and to give them a toy that is far more attractive to them. The child is no longer interested in the dangerous object when they see a colorful, noisy, moving toy in their hands. The child is able to figure out that the fork or chopsticks in their hands 
are nothing compared to the amazing toy that they are holding right now. When we realize how amazing the gift of salvation is, it is only then that we are able to let go of whatever we are holding on to. We will no longer love whatever it is that we are holding on to more than Jesus Christ. God tells all of us to let go of the worthless things. He tells us to let go of the things that we love more than Jesus. It is only when we are able to let go of those things that we are able to follow Jesus Christ our Lord. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 to 21 tells us, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I hope and pray that we can all live our lives letting go of anything that is holding us back from following our Lord Jesus Christ. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. Here I stand, arms open.